Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church Associate Pastor, Pastor Robert Bennett. Open your Bibles. That's where we want to start. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10, because that is where we are going to find the text for this morning's sermon. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Children, you are dismissed to Children's Church. This morning we're going to be approaching what many consider to be the teaching of Deuteronomy in just a few verses. Uh, Recently, Terry and I have taken up the task of trying to teach the kids the the titles of the, the, uh, the book names to memorize them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on. And we came to this book not too long ago, and it was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and John Connor says, Deuteronomy. And it sounds so adorable. He says, it's Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. And I said, no, 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 no. It's adorable, but I had to correct him. Uh, it's a great book, but you have to say the name right. And so I said, no, Connor, it's Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. So you have to say Deuteronomy. So now if you ask him, what's the fifth book of the Bible? He's going to say Deuteronomy. He doesn't say, he doesn't say Deuteronomy. He says he emphasizes the part that daddy emphasizes. So you can see that uh, uh, either my teaching is going well or he's just picking up on bad habits. So he says Deuteronomy. What began for him as a daunting task to pronounce such a long word, once he got to it and started to practice it, it became easier and easier. And this reminds me of, of our current season that we're in. And you may be thinking, it's Christmas season. But uh, toward the, uh, on Christmas Eve, the season is the season of assembling toys for parents, right? Hours and hours of moms and dads overnight <laughs> assembling presents putting them either next to the tree or under the tree. Or if you buy your kids Lego, then you give them the responsibility to build their own stuff, right? And that could be something from a couple of pieces to a display to the Star Wars Millennium Falcon 7,500 and what? 7,514 foot pain-inducing landmines for you to step on. You know that Lego actually came out with slippers so that uh, parents can avoid the pain of walking over what has been left over for them. When you look at these assembly instructions, you realize how daunting the task is until you pick up those directions and you realize they start just like everything else does, one piece at a time, and a daunting task then becomes a little more overcoming, a little more easy to overcome. And I I want you to think of that idea of getting to the end goal and achieving the end goal when we give attention to the foundational instructions. So just like those Legos, uh, just like any other thing that we have to assemble, uh, it all starts with looking at the instructions. Deuteronomy. You may think that doesn't make any sense, Pastor Rob. It will. As we look at Deuteronomy, we're going to look at Deuteronomy. We're going to see basic instructions for God's people to follow to learn what God requires of them. Just five pieces that you need to assemble, and you'll come out serving the Lord as he commands and requires you to do. Deuteronomy is the last section of the book of the law, the Torah, Moses authored the book, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 and 5. 
And he did this shortly before his death as the nation of Israel was about to cross over into the land that God had promised to them. This nation was no longer the same nation that left Egypt, left slavery in Egypt. The rebellion of their parents meant that the nation would wander for 40 years in the desert. Now, this new nation stands at the edge of the land that God had promised to them. And Deuteronomy communicates what God expects from this new generation. Moses had spoken to this, the, the people's parents. They rebelled. And now this new nation needs to have that same command and commitment as they go into God's land, the promised land given to them, so that they'll be prepared to follow after God. Their parents turned out to be apostate, they are called to be true worshipers of God. That's what God wants. He wants people to worship him. Now, this book is very important, not just to you and I, not just to the Israelites, but it's important to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the book that he quoted when he was being tempted in the wilderness. It was the first book that he quoted. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. This was our Lord's favorite book. More than any other book of the New Testament, this book, Deuteronomy, is quoted. I think it's important for us to understand, if we don't constantly read this, that when we do get in, we focus on a passage that will cover the entirety of what God requires of his people especially for this nation who's about to enter into the promised land. So let's see what God's expectations are for us. This passage, we're going to learn about three aspects of God's relationship with his people. Three aspects of God's relationship with his people. The main outline looks like this. First, we have the Lord's expectations, and that's going to take the most of our time this morning. Second, the Lord's election. And third, the Lord's exhortation. So because of our time and the limitations that we have, let's get right into it because this is going to be a harrowing trip as we shoot through this passage. I told Pastor Matt I've got 27 pages of notes. So we've got a lot to cover. You know, there's... There's like 180 pages to put together that Lego set. So I think 27 is okay <laughs> as we go through this this morning. Let's read the passage so you know what we're looking at. Moses writes this, Now Israel, what does the Lord require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all the peoples as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck. No longer. Now Moses wastes, wastes no time searching for an eloquent, eloquent way to introduce God's expectation to Israel. He begins, and now Israel, what does the Lord require from you? It's a rhetorical question. It's meant to seek to stimulate the minds of the people. He's not calling them to respond. He's prompting them. He's preparing them to receive God's expectations. He's speaking to the nation, the chosen people of God, and his question is important to us this morning. So important to us this morning. His question, what does the Lord require from you? It's a probing question, one that we cannot get wrong. Because if we get this question wrong, it doesn't matter what we get right in life. If we mess up on what God requires of us, what really matters? So don't miss the magnitude of this question this morning, dear friends. 
Within this question lies one of the ultimate questions that mankind asks. Like, why am I here? Why are you here, Moses says? What does the Lord require of you? You want to know? This was the question that was asked. But Moses doesn't wait very long to give them the answer. That's what a rhetorical question does. It gives you a question, and then you're supposed to understand the answer. But Moses doesn't wait, and he tells them what it is. And he explains God's expectation with five infinitives. And uh, today is also a English lesson on infinitives, and you're going to learn this one very easily. Infinitives are verbs that start with the word to. So let me give you an example, or a few of them. For example, we are going to fly to Colorado for Christmas. Or we decided to sleep in on Thursday. Or to get the meaning of the text clearly, the congregation was determined to look closely at the infinitives. Are you getting the idea? Now as your eyes are trained to see these infinitives, let's look at the passage again. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding for you this day, for your good. You're getting, you're picturing these five Infinitives, these five verbs that you'll be looking at as these requirements that God has for his people. Consider what the Lord requires of you today. By stating that it is the Lord your God, we can understand that there is already a relationship between the people and Yahweh. This is not, uh, hey, just want to let you know, here's a God and here's what he requires. No, this is already an established relationship between God and his people Israel. The previous generation was full of false worshipers, and now this nation is called to be true worshipers. The verb requires tell us, tells us that it's already a relationship there. There's a covenant, a contract between God and his people. These expectations that God requires are the same for us today. And Moses has given these expectations as absolutes. These are non-negotiable. These are not up for debate. These are not five suggestions that the nation is called to follow. They're expectations that the Lord has for his people. So let's look at each one of them and see how their interconnectedness even helps us further to understand what God requires. Each one connects back to the verb require, And it starts with fearing the Lord your God. The first expectation that God has for his people is that they will have a healthy fear of him. Now, this is so needed today, isn't it? I mean, so needed in our culture, in this world today. It comes from the Hebrew word yare, and it means to be afraid, to stand in awe, To hold someone in reverence, it is to express a holy terror. And like phobias, this is called a theophobia. People are called to fear God. This is a call for continual manifestations of the fear of the Lord. It is a pattern of life that the Lord expects from his people. This pattern is repeated in Proverbs where the writer says that all wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. We will know and have wisdom if we fear the Lord. But you're going to say, well, why should I fear the Lord? I thought the Lord was full of love. How can a God of love also command us to fear him? And the answer is simple. Because God is holy. He's so other that we ought to give him reverence, but we also should have a healthy fear of him. Fear is a good thing. God is so completely other that it would drive any sane individual to madness. 
if he were to just contemplate God's thoughts for a moment. Consider that just the mere glance of part of the Lord's glory caused Moses' face to shine. Just a glance. Moses had to wear a veil for the rest of his life because his face shone so bright because of his encounter with the Lord. Man, by nature, fears what he does not understand, and this is good. Fear keeps us inside an airplane instead of jumping out of one, at least for most of us. My brother likes to do that stuff. Fear keeps us from picking random berries off the path and putting them in our mouths. Fear keeps us from running across the street in the middle of traffic. Fear keeps us alert when we take our kids to the mall or to an amusement park or just out in public these days. Fear is a gift from God, and we should take advantage of it in this fallen world. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Imagine, if you can, a nation lacking fear. I know it's especially a fear of God that's kind of hard to contemplate these days. Because fear is a component of shame. And we know what a shameless culture looks like, don't we? A culture that has no fear of God. A shameless culture is a culture without fear. There are plenty of fearful things out there, but what is sorely lacking is a real fear of God. It has been said that when we fear God rightly, every other fear disappears. So what about you? You sit comfortably in your seats this morning. Do you fear the Lord this morning? There are many individuals in the Bible who feared God. Consider Job. He was afraid of God. God spoke to him in a whirlwind. If you heard the Lord's voice in a whirlwind, you'd be afraid too. The Apostle Paul, knocked off of his horse on the road to Damascus, was afraid of God. The Apostle John, who knew the Lord personally, when he saw Jesus Christ standing in glory in Revelation chapter 1, heard his voice as a voice of many waters, his arrayed in great arraignment. He saw him and he feared. He fell down as a dead man. And this was the apostle. This was the disciple that Jesus loved. And fear racked his soul when he saw the Lord and just heard his voice. This is what the Lord requires of us, to have a healthy fear. It's not just something that happens in the Old Testament. Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians, a couple of times in 2 Corinthians actually, and I could give you so many other examples in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you a couple of them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're reminded that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, Therefore, therefore what? Knowing that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. There's a day in which others will stand before the Lord and receive condemnation. So we persuade individuals because we know that we all will be called to judgment, not to condemnation, but our works will be judged. And so because we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade individuals, calling them to repentance. We must have a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it says this. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Don't, don't leave your Bibles in your laps. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Unless it's in your lap and you can read it from there. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Actually, chapter 6 also. Chapter 7 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, what promises? Well, the promises he promised in chapter 6, that uh, the Lord will welcome his people, that he will be their father, and they will be his sons and daughters. These promises, therefore, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness 
in the fear of God. So having the promises in chapter 6 does not exempt us from fearing the Lord. We as his children should have that fear of God. That promise, those promises that God gives us, should be the motivation for us then to cleanse our hearts, our flesh, of any defilement that may hinder our worship. Do you know why you see men and women fall into sin? Because they don't have a fear of God. Right? Do you know why you sin so easily sometimes? I bet you can guess what I'm going to say. It's because you're not having a healthy fear of God. You want to have a right relationship, one that is growing in depth. Fear God. Fear the Lord your God. Do what Moses is telling the nation to do. So first, fear the Lord your God. Second, walk in all his ways. Not only does God require his people to fear him, he also calls them to walk in his ways. It's not just a feeling of awe and reverence that God's people are to have. They're required to be people who walk in God's designed path. We say, what is your walk? You've heard that. Actually, that might be passe these days. How's your walk in Christ? It feels like it's about 10, 15 years old these days. The Hebrew word here is direct and means a road, a way, a journey, a manner, a habit, or a way of life. Strange to walk here and everything to do with our behavior is our walk with the Lord. Walk is how we conduct ourselves, how we act. Walking in the ways of the Lord is an outward representation of fearing the Lord on the inside. You want to walk with the Lord, you've got to know the Lord, you've got to fear the Lord, and your outward walk will represent what's changed on the inside. You have a healthy fear of the Lord, you'll walk in all his ways. This is not the first time that Moses speaks to God's people about walking. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find the Shema begins by calling the nation to love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I practice saying that in Hebrew, but I'm not going to try to do that before you. Ten times in the book of Deuteronomy alone, people are called to walk in the ways of the Lord. In that section, Deuteronomy 6, it says that you're supposed to tell your children as you walk, as you rise, all of this to describe the work of the Lord, the person of God, what he's done for the nation. The parents were supposed to teach their children what the Lord had done. So ten times in Deuteronomy alone, there's a call that goes out to walk in the ways of Yahweh. Later in the Old Testament, kings were determined whether they were good kings or bad kings with the description of, and he walked in the ways of his father David, or he walked in the ways of Jeroboam. And these were descriptions as to whether they walked in the ways of the Lord or not. If they were a good king, they said he walked in the ways of David, his father. That was not found very often. If you have looked in the books of Kings or Chronicles, there wasn't many times it was said and he walked in the ways of David, his father. But you saw often, but he was an evil king because he walked in the ways of Jeroboam or Ahab and thus walking contrary to the ways of the Lord. The New Testament also uses this description of walking and how it represents our expression of faithfulness and service to the Lord. Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, we were just reading Colossians chapter 2, this verse, verse 6, last week, Pastor Matt read this. It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Listen, this is not some pseudo-Christian walk either. Moses is commanding through the Lord, through Moses, commanding the people to walk in the ways of the Lord, not just some of them, but it's a superlative. He's saying, walk in all the ways of the Lord. 
This is not just a halfway commitment to service to the Lord. This is genuine, all-the-time walking. Our great king requires us to walk in all his ways. So you got to ask, well, what does that even look like? I mean, that sounds a little abstract. What does it look like to walk in the ways of the Lord? Sometimes you hear commandments from pulpits saying, you got you to walk in the ways of the Lord. Now let's be dismissed, and you got to figure out what that is. That's, the Scriptures give us a way in which we can understand what it looks like to walk in the ways of the Lord. The Israelites had dietary restrictions. They had specific ordinances that set them apart from other nations. When they did that, they represented separateness as God commanded them. When they did that, they were walking in the ways of the Lord. He had commanded them to do these things. They did them. The end of Deuteronomy, you have the section of blessings and cursings. He says, if you follow after me, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. If you do the things of the Lord, you're blessed, and therefore, by extension, you're walking in the ways of the Lord. As Christians, we have certain activities that are unique, or at least seem unique until uh, the world copies them. We go to church on the first day of the week. Welcome to Sunday. This is the day that the Lord has made for us to serve Him in. We observe communion, we perform baptisms, we abstain from sinful worldly activities, not to receive something from God or to obtain salvation. Not to receive forgiveness. We don't, we don't serve the Lord in that way or walk in his ways to receive something. We've already received it as his children in eternal salvation, forgiveness of our sins already. We walk now out of gratitude, recognizing who God is and that he commanded us to. Let us not forget that we have been commanded as God's people today in his word to follow after Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my suggestions, right? No. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That means that there are commandments to follow. The people of God are to be marked by their holiness in the world. The conduct of an unbeliever will not match the conduct of a believer for very long. You can fake it, but you'll never make it as an unbeliever when you try to act like a believer. It just doesn't work. Because these changes are the changes that happen where? Here. Right? And you can only make that up for so long. It doesn't work continually. So, the question is, how's your walk? How's your walk? What about you? Is the change that's happened because you are called to fear the Lord translated into a walking with the Lord? These are heavy requirements. We've already seen that we're to fear Him, and we're supposed to show that fear through walking, but the pinnacle here is the next one. You can find it back in verse 12. What is it? What's to love the Lord? All of these are the pinnacle. This is, I consider it to be a chiastic form. These commands, these infinitives are chiastic. It just means they kind of form a point. The ones on the ends match, and you kind of move up to the pinnacle. The point being love. We are called to love. There were a lot of treaties back in ancient Near Eastern times. And you would think it strange to have a king call his subjects to love him, but it was common. Here, no different, except that the love that we're called to is absolute dedication, a passionate love to have for God. Not a familial love, but a marital passionate love to have for God. To love God fully, not driven by emotions, but by truth and understanding. 
earlier during Moses' first address to the nation, chapter 6, verse 5, Moses called Israel to love the Lord with their entire being. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You're supposed to love him with everything you have. Try to tell me that's a partial love. It's not. It's absolute, full bore, all the way love for the Lord. Here we see that at the heart of the list of the Lord's requirements for his people is a requirement for their hearts. He knew that it would be difficult to surrender their hearts to him, but thankfully, person's given over to the Lord, they're given the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, to help with that desire. You and I have a desire to love the Lord fully. He's given us His Spirit to motivate and grow us in that love for Christ. And by extension, our love for Christ creates a hate within us for sin and wickedness that we want to cast from ourselves that our love grows greater for the Lord. External obedience can be easy to imitate, but only a true believer will relinquish his or her heart to God. This command is at the heart of the Lord's requirements because it's the greatest of all. And again, our Lord thought it was pretty important. Matthew chapter 22, you've heard this before. Jesus gives the greatest of all commandments, which was what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Then he says you're supposed to love your neighbors yourself, but Jesus said that the first love that we ought to have is for God. Having unfettered love for God is so important today, isn't it? Think of yourself. Understand that the thing that receives your greatest devotion is the thing that you love the most. It's a sure way to know what we worship when we examine what we love the most. Let me look into your life. Spend a little bit of time, and I'll be able to tell you what you love the most. It's an easy thing to see because our lives surround it. Everything focuses in on it. Is it your family? Is it your job? Money? What is it? It doesn't take much to figure that out. God calls us to love him, and he gives us the power to do so. We worship, and our worship follows our love. And God wants us to worship. He wants our worship, and he requires and deserves our love. The love described here is not casual, but passionate. Many today have sullied the description of this love by focusing exclusively on the passion part of it, thinking it originates with our emotions. But as I mentioned before, it doesn't originate with our emotions. Our emotions are driven by our thinking. We have to have our thinking right. If our thinking is right, then our passion for the Lord is right. Our passion should be driven by what we understand God to be. Our love for God starts first and foremost in our minds. It's a result of our knowledge of who God is. So we fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. That wisdom then translates into a walk, and that walk translates into a love to have for the Lord. So Beginning of wisdom, fear, the right kind of thinking then produces the right kind of love. Are you loving God fully? Do you love the Lord? Many people today believe the Bible describes God differently in the Old Testament. The Old Testament God was a God of war and destruction. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love. But they're different gods. But I have some news for you. God considered himself to be a husband to Israel. And when Israel sinned against the Lord, they committed spiritual adultery. This is not a 
casual relationship. It was a covenanted relationship that represented God and his people. And you think, well, okay, that makes sense. And in the New Testament, you think, well, God is a God of love, and he is. But he is not a divorce or just a denying of God's commandments, too. God can be both things. God can be angry. In the book of Revelation, I think I read that Jesus is going to come back at the end with a sword. And it will be used. A robe dipped in blood. God can be both a God of love and a God of justice. He can be a both and, not an either or. So let's continue on. So much more could be said, obviously, about God's love and how we ought to love him. We've looked at three of the five commands, requirements. We're on to the fourth. Fourthly, we're to serve the Lord our God. The fourth initiative, the fourth infinitive, is to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your soul. This is the call to God's people to live your life in continual service. Each one of these infinitives is a command of an ongoing requirement. You're supposed to continually fear the Lord. You're supposed to continually walk in his ways. You're supposed to continually love the Lord. It's not a, I did that. I feared the Lord once. I walked in his ways when I was young. I loved the Lord. I, there was a church in Ephesus that had done that love and said, oh, we did that. And the Lord Jesus says that you need to go back to your first love because you've forgotten it. We're called to have an ongoing, constant love and an ongoing, constant service to the Lord our God. Moses uses what would become a common Hebrew idiom in the phrase, with all your heart and with all your soul. So as you're reading the scriptures, look for that. An idiom is just a saying, um, just a, a catch of the, the phrasing there. So if you see all your heart with all your soul in Moses' writings, understand a lot of it originated here. After looking at the heart and requiring love, there's a movement from internal devotion to external response. And this response was to be extensive. The phrase is used to express the comprehensive nature of commitment to the Lord. Comprehensive. Not a part-time job when you serve the Lord. Moses is addressing the first generation in over 400 years that had not been in slavery. And he uses this phrasing, serve the Lord. Now, those of you that understand what this means, understands that servanthood is not a bad thing. Slavery is not a terrible thing if it's understood scripturally. You understand that we are not slaves to sin any longer. We are slaves to Christ. We change from one master to another. Now, man stealing and these sorts of things are wrong. And there's plenty of examples uh, and teachings out there that will help you to understand the difference here. We're talking about servanthood. We're supposed to serve the Lord. The nation of Israel... He's addressing them. They had been, their parents lived in servanthood as slaves to the Egyptians. And now Moses says, now you be slaves to God. Serve the Lord your God. Israel's history as a fickle nation regarding their faithful obedience further explains why the Lord used this phrase. You remember what happened? Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 32, 34, Exodus chapter 30, 24, Moses recounts what the Lord had told him on the mountain and the nation, and their response was, well, whatever God told you to tell us, we're going to do it. In fact, the wording is, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. This was the response of the nation. Moses comes down from the mountain, says, here's what the Lord requires, and they say, whatever he wants from us, we'll do it. And it wasn't very long before Moses goes up into the mountain and the people say, we need to build a calf 
We need you to build us, Aaron, a, a God so that we can worship. Fickle, very, very short term before they began turning away from the God they were commanded to serve. Apparently, the Israelites had a warped view of ultimate commitment to the Lord. This is why we should not confuse acts of service or a declaration of belief with an ongoing lifestyle of serving God with all our hearts and all our souls. There's a difference between just saying I'm a Christian and serving the Lord with all our heart and with all our soul. We're not supposed to just say everybody's an unbeliever unless you fulfill what I consider to be the requirements of a Christian. We do look at the Scriptures and say, well, this is what a person who says they're a believer does. And if they don't do that, then we ought to be concerned and encourage them. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the truth. But as Israel said, we're servants of the Lord. Whatever the Lord says we're going to do, and they turn around and do the opposite, then they're proving themselves to not be worshipers of God, not to be servants of the Lord. We're not to be half-hearted servants of the Lord. We're supposed to be slaves of God. A slave gives his whole heart and whole soul to his master. It's a very sad day when Christians serve God only to the degree that they believe they're going to be rewarded for it. Or as long as things are going well for them. If that's what we consider to be serving, we're surely wrong. So often serving with all heart and soul becomes, I'll work hard until something easier comes along. The hymn writer was right when he describes himself as prone to wander, prone to leave the God he loves. Please understand that your service to God doesn't empower God. That because you serve, it doesn't somehow make God continue on. God is not surviving off of the worship of his creatures like pagan gods do. He doesn't need your wholehearted service because he lacks something. Paul told the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 that our God is the God who made the world and all things in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since it is he who gives life to all people and breath and all things. So why do we serve God? We serve him because he's commanded us to. <clears throat> we serve God because we are designed to serve and worship. We are called to do these things, and he's the best of it all. We serve God because he deserves our service. Are you serving God with all your heart, with all your soul? Well, what does it look like to serve with all my heart, with all my soul? Well, I can assure you it doesn't mean that everyone here needs to be a pastor. There's already some disqualifying characteristics for half of you. You don't have to become a missionary to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. It's not a requirement that you abandon everything in life in order to become that type of missionary, in order to serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. Being a pastor is a wonderful blessing. It's enriched my life. It's a joy to serve the Lord in that capacity. But you don't have to do it to be serving the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. Shortly after moving here, Shannon Wakely, I don't see her here, she... Uh, contacted me and asked me what I'd like my office to look like. And in the end, we settled on some scriptures to be framed up and, and on one of my walls, uh, big words, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And it says, that whatever, whatever therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the essence of serving God. Whatever you do, do in the pursuit of God's glory. That's what genuine service looks like. Evangelism, making disciples, are not optional in your service. It's not a suggestion. It's a great commission to be followed. 
For mothers and fathers, a good place to start with evangelism and discipleship are your kids. These are ministries that we're called to. But there's also ministries in the Lord's body, in His church, that you could be doing. Steve Lawson puts it this way, The Lord has called all His children to give their time, their talents, and their treasure in service to the Lord. Are there any of those areas you need guidance? Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Matt. Talk to Tom or Greg's not here, but you can talk to him later. You want to serve the Lord and you're not sure how? We can help to disciple you and determine what area you could serve the Lord in. But you're supposed to serve to the glory of God. With your time and your gifts And we serve the Lord in our giving. So fifthly and finally, we've got got plenty of time. Fifthly and finally, we're supposed to keep the Lord's commandments and statutes. The last of the requirements that the Lord has for his chosen people is that they keep his commandments and his statutes. It's like all the other infinitives that Moses uses, this is continuous. Not a, well, I kept the Lord's commandments at one time. It's a, we continually keep the Lord's commands. If you're a child of God, he's called you to keep on keeping his commandments and statutes. And you say, well, we're not legalists, Robert. We're not doing these things. We're not here to keep the law. And I know you're not. These commandments aren't kept to inherit eternal life. That fixed your problem. You don't keep God's commands so that God will take you to heaven. That's not how this works. That's not the system that God designed. He says that repent of your sins, believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive eternal life. Not follow my laws and therefore work your way to heaven. That's a different system. That's a different religion. That has nothing to do with Christianity. Nothing. But we're still supposed to keep his commandments and the statutes. It's not to be ignored. And he says, he gives a reason why. What does he say? I'm giving you these things for your... See if anybody's following along in this passage. For your good. That's right. This, these commands that we're keeping, these statutes that we're keeping, are not just to make God happy. Serving the Lord, keeping His commandments is for our good. We do these things not for our good, but they result in our good. It would be a shame to act as though Jesus didn't give us any laws to to obey, because He did. Going back to chapter 6 of Deuteronomy... Here we see, or we can imagine, peering into a conversation between a father and his son. We see a reason why we serve God and we teach our kids these things. A son, perhaps, this is an imaginary scenario. The son asks his father, what's with all the commandments and statutes? And the father answers, given this opportunity. He explains a miracle performed by God when they were released from slavery. The father tells him that after all the Lord has done for them, he only commands them to obey his laws, but that the laws were for their good. It was out of God's kindness that he gave the law and instruction. That's why he gives these commands, not, well, a couple of reasons. He gives his law so that we can see that we can't keep it as unbelievers, and then we flee to God who provides forgiveness of sins and a substitute for us. But antinomians, those who are grace, grace, and everything's grace, people say that it's not important. Christ freed us from keeping the law, but that's wrong. We ought not to be legalists that believe that we have to follow laws to be Christians, but we ought not to also be antinomians that says we don't do any laws because it's all about God's grace. We keep laws because we're commanded to, but we don't keep laws to be Christians. You see there's a difference there? You have to understand that. I'm going to say it again then. Okay? 
we don't keep the laws to become Christians. We keep them because God's commanded us to. But we're supposed to keep them. Period. They're not suggestions. The Bible says that the law is designed to assure survival and it's for good. Last week, the call to worship psalm was at a Psalm 19, and we spent weeks in Psalm 119, all talking about the statutes and the commandments and the precepts of God and how wonderful they are. There's much good to be said about God's law. Law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They're good things. Good things. The Israelites refused to obey the commandments, and God sent them into captivity. I mean, he promised that these things would happen. Follow me, blessings. Don't follow me, cursings. Cursing kind of sounds like you might end up in captivity. So serve. Keep the Lord's commands. Jesus again said, if you love me, keep my commandments. These are the five requirements that the Lord requires from all his people. And I can say with confidence that these are not optional. These are not suggestions, period. By the time we have left this morning, I want to look at the last few verses. This is on the Lord's election, verses 14 and 15. Now that we've seen the requirements to live in obedience to God, now we want to take a moment to learn something about why this obedience is necessary. Verse, verses 14 and 15. Behold... The Lord your God belong, or to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. There are a few sentences in the scripture that carry such astonishing substance as these. You want to understand the transcendence and eminence of God? Some theological words that say that God works within his creation, and yet God is so transcendent and outside of his creation that God is both transcendent and eminent. This is the passage for you. You want to understand election and how God could set his mind on a creature who doesn't deserve it? Boom. Right here. Powerful sentence. In order to get a clear description of the infinite sovereignty which the Lord has over his creation, Moses uses the heavens and the earth as comparisons, as reference points. God's sovereignty still stretches to the infinite reaches of the cosmos. And here, like not other places that I'm from, do you get to see some of the cosmos? In Los Angeles, it's hard to see the sky that's not polluted with noise and light and all of these things. And uh, one summer, my wife and I went out to Santa Barbara, which is a couple hours north of Los Angeles, and got away from the city, the lights and all of that, and went camping. And you could look out and see the Milky Way and a clear sky. Looking at the cosmos and doing so, I thought of the vastness of God, but also immediately, you know what I thought of? I am puny. <laughs> this entire universe, and I'm a speck on a speck. And I could sit with thinking with that, and, but the Scripture doesn't leave me there. The Scripture didn't leave the Israelites there. It says, to the Lord belong the heavens and the heavens of heavens and the highest heaven. And the earth and all that is in it. So not just looking out into the cosmos, the Milky Way, and that's just one galaxy, but looking down at our feet and recognizing the specks on the ground and the dust is also belonging to the Lord. That is the transcendence of God. But he's also close. And then he calls his people. 
He says, yet the Lord had compassion and he showed his love on one nation. And he showed his love on you. My favorite verse, I, I, I probably mention it every sermon I preach, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He looked, he recognized your sinfulness and yet he chose you. For your own work? No. But by his own choice as the potter upon the clay. That's our God. Once Moses had established God's supreme sovereignty, he then looks and says, and yet God chose you as a nation. And they weren't a great nation. Forty years ago, from this time, they were a bunch of slaves. Go back even further, another 400 years or more, you've got one family, Abraham. says, of you I'm going to make a great nation. Great as in, like, important? No. Great as in, it's great because God chose them. In fact, he uses, in in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, verse 7, he says, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Don't get high on yourself. You weren't that important. I chose you as an example of what I can do with the least. That just takes the air out of your lungs when the Lord says, I didn't choose you because you brought something to me, but I chose you for my own purpose. I chose you because I wanted to show my love to you. And that same example is that Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love toward us. Christ died for us. You think you're big stuff, and that's why God chose you, you're a rock star, and Praise the Lord, we have a Christian rock star, and that's what's really going to move the kingdom of God. No, God chose you because he wanted to, and he wanted to forgive you of your sins, and in your sins, he still died for you. So walk, fear, walk, love, serve, keep his commandments. Finally, the Lord's exhortations, point three, the Lord's exhortation in verse 16 says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. So he said, here's my requirements. You're not that great a nation, but I chose you. I am the Lord. Everything belongs to me, and yet I chose you. Now, circumcise your heart and don't stiffen your neck. It's all about the heart. Have you noticed this? This entire passage is all about what goes on here. In counseling, it's constantly, I'm talking about, the, it's about what goes on here. You want to see transformation? You want to see hope? Seek to transform this through the power of the Holy Spirit in His Word, the Word of God. Tra- change those things, and your life will change. It's about the heart. So he says, circumcise your heart. Again, another vivid description because the Israelites knew what circumcision was. There's a physical sign of a separation of those people. Again, this was not something all the nations around did. Every male in the nation of Israel called to be circumcised. That's what set them apart. Now the Lord says, circumcise your heart. Cut away that which hinders your service. The crux of the covenant relationship between the Lord and Israel and between the Lord and all of us involves our wicked hearts. These two exhortations, circumcise heart and a prohibition to stiff-neckedness, stiff-neckedness, obstinance, stubbornness, stubbornness, that's better. 
This is it called, and don't be stubborn. Okay? Get your heart right, and don't be stubborn. The first is extremely vivid. The second, for some reason, makes me think of a donkey. Right? Mules are very stubborn animals. People can be very stubborn beings. I don't want to say animals. But people can be pretty stubborn. You and I can be pretty stubborn. So the exhortation here is stop. Keep my commandments. Recognize you're not hot stuff. Circumcise your heart and stop being stubborn. Period. That's what the Lord requires of you. So if you're taking notes, I mean, that's, that's it. That is Deuteronomy in a nutshell. In a couple of sentences, you have, whether you're taking them on your, your piece of paper or on your iPad, you're taking these notes, it's pretty simple. Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. Love him. Serve him. Keep his commandments. And really, stop being stubborn. And serve the Lord with your heart. Because he's commanded us to do so. That's it. Can you do that? Not without the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't. So if you haven't had that, here's your opportunity. This nation was called to be separate. If you're sitting in your seat today looking at this mug and thinking, you know what, I don't have that. I have not been separated. I'm, I don't believe Jesus. I don't understand what that means. Well, then that's what the gospel is all about, is recognizing that we've been sinful, recognizing that we don't deserve anything that we've been given. We've lied. We've rebelled against God. I don't even have to ask for hands. Dishonored our parents by sticking Legos on the floor before Christmas Eve. We have not served the Lord. Jesus made it even harder to understand the commands by going to the heart. Again, back to the heart. He says, you've heard it said of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And who of us can say that we've never lusted or hated, got angry? Who of us are pure? None. Romans 3 says that that. there's none that are righteous, not even one. Everything that proceeds out of our hearts as an unbeliever is filth. Poison of asps under our tongues. Hearts just turn to wickedness. That's us. That's a pretty picture you want to hang on your wall. That's what we look like. But Jesus, in that, saw you in your sinful state and died for you anyway. Took, Colossians chapter 2, took the accusations of your sins and nailed to the cross all of those accusations. So you'd be free. But he calls you to repent. Turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ is the only way to have forgiveness and receive eternal life. You can do that this morning. Our elders are available to you. Matt will be available. Surely I'll be available to you. We can talk now. We can set a time to sit down and talk, but don't wait. It doesn't take long for you to read the news and realize that there's a lot of people that thought they'd have an extra day and didn't. You can't even get to this step of what the Lord requires if you don't believe first. I call you, I exhort you, I plead, please turn from your sins and believe Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, you are so great and so worthy of our love, our fear, our service. You deserve our walking in your ways. You deserve us to keep your commandments and statutes and to serve you because of who you are, the creator, the sovereign of the universe, who 
even though you're so otherly and holy, stooped down and died for us. May we honor you, serve you with our lips and our work and our treasures and our talents because you're holy and we desire to be holy as well. May we as a body exemplify servanthood to one another and to you for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray these things. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our associate pastor, Pastor Robert Bennett, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.